without further ado, let's get started with our first talk on compassion-focused therapy from Dr. Chris Irons. So Chris is a clinical psychologist, author, and director at Balanced Minds, an independent psychology practice in London, which aims to bring compassion-focused approaches to individuals and organizations in the UK. In his clinical work, he uses compassion-focused therapy in working with people suffering from a variety of mental health problems, as well as making these ideas more accessible to the general public. He is an internationally recognized trainer and supervisor of CFT and the author of a number of books, including The Compassionate Mind Workbook, CFT from the Inside Out, and CFT for Difficult Emotions. Chris also works with the Compassionate Mind Foundation, a charitable organization aiming to promote well-being through the scientific understanding and application of compassion. So I was speaking to Chris earlier, he actually spoke at our second ever event, and it's an absolute delight to um, have us back with, with, with us here today, almost three years later. So. Um, you can also learn more about Chris's work at www.balanceminds.com. So Chris, whenever you're ready, let's just get started and really looking forward to this. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Nan, and, and welcome to everyone. It's, it's so wonderful to uh, be here today. It's a real privilege. And already just to see on the chat room, just people saying hello, uh, please do just type in where you're watching from today. I've already seen uh, Asia, Canada, Australia, and so on. So uh, it's wonderful to have such a, an international community and a real sense of uh, connectedness, hopefully, at these difficult times, too. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for that introduction now. Um, so I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, an academic, um, a researcher. I have been uh, involved in doing CFT work for a very long time. I first met Paul Gilbert, who is the, uh, the wonderful developer of CFT. I started working with Paul uh, 21 years ago. So half of my life I have uh, spent working on compassion-focused therapy in one way or another. And my job today, I hope, is to try to get you across uh, or try to get across to you some of the uh, ideas that underpin CFT and also just to give you a bit of a flavor, really, of why I think this approach is a, a, a really fantastic approach to supporting, well, people in the therapy room, certainly uh, couples, um, uh, certainly groups of people, but also just broadening this out into all of us because one of the things I wanted to emphasize, really, just even at the start, is that although this is a model of psychotherapy, um, one of the things that we know that connects all of us, so you can have a look in the chat room here, people tuning in from all over the world. One thing that we know which will link all of us in this life is that all of us will suffer at various stages of our life. So if you think about the billions of people on the planet at this stage, one of the only things all of us will actually experience in the same similar kind of ways, all of us will experience distress and suffering at various points of life. And it turns out that is what compassion is about. That is what compassion is for. Being with, meeting and working with trying to do something helpful for distress and suffering. So I really hope that I can get across that this is a general model of the mind and body. This is a model of all of us, even if I do give you some of the, uh, the therapeutic uh, uh, version of this. So what I'm going to try to do is to just give you a little bit of background, really. And, and actually, I'm going to start off with something which might seem a little bit strange, given that this is a day on uh, third wave approaches, is to say that uh, actually we uh, don't describe ourselves as a third wave cognitive behavioral therapy model. Um, now, uh, the point about that is people can describe you as all sorts of things in life. Uh, whether you actually describe yourself as that thing personally, as an individual, uh, that's another thing completely. 
Now, the reason why, there's nothing wrong with third wave approaches. And in fact, I love them. I think they're fantastic. Um, but I just want to give you a little bit of context here, the history that might help you to understand that uh, certainly CFT uses wonderful interventions from cognitive behavioral therapy, but there's a difference between interventions and a model of approach. So what I mean by this then is that CFT is a, a science-based, integrative, evolutionary informed approach to working with uh, uh, distress. And in that sense, we take a, a very much a biopsychosocial approach to this. And so we're very fascinated about how do we understand human distress and suffering? How do we try to relieve that? But also in considering how do we try to stimulate well-being, flourishing, and certainly pro-sociality. And one way that I can try to shape this is to help you to recognize that CFT has multiple lineages. Now, of course, you could argue this for every single approach. Uh, before uh, Beck developed cognitive therapy, so before Beck became uh, uh, Mr. Cognitive Therapy, what was he? Well, he was an analyst. So the point is, if we look at all of our therapies, that they have multiple lineages into them. And sometimes we forget about that, and that is problematic. Now, one way to look at multiple lineages is through this picture. So just as you can see here that in this pool of water, there are many different flows of water that contribute to it. So, of course, is the same when it comes to compassion-focused therapy. So how did CFT start? Well, it started with Professor Paul Gilbert uh, back in the 80s, and it started slowly with many different influences. So, of course, on one level, there was some wonderful interviews, uh, uh, um, background to CFT from a cognitive behavioral point of view. But as I'm going to talk you through later, one of the things that Paul started to notice was not just the content of people's thoughts, but also just to recognize that there was a type of inner hostility that was often present that was very damaging. Now, in some ways, this will, uh, uh, links with the work of uh, Greenberg and others, which really recognize that it's uh, not just the content of self-criticism, it's often the emotional tone or the emotions that come with self-criticism that can do a lot of the damage. And so to really recognize then that within this, just shifting the cognitive content of thoughts didn't actually help some people. And I'm going to come back to explore this. So CBT certainly uh, 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 underpins some of CFT. Certainly psychodynamic ideas underpin uh, um, uh, CFT approaches too. So the recognition of the importance of various defenses. So of course, we know lots about these defenses now, dissociation, denial, and so on. And recognizing, of course, as time's gone on, the uh, increasing scientific evidence, uh, recognizing unconscious processes uh, and so on. So the recognition that CFT in part emerges out of psychodynamic traditions, uh, certainly evolutionary traditions. So CFT has overlaps and certainly emerges out of uh, attachment theory. So those of you who are interested in attachment theory, that is an evolutionary psychology approach, uh, Bowlby was talking about the evolved mammalian attachment system. So it's rooted in this. And of course, one of the wonderful things that Paul Gilbert has been focused on over many, many years really is it's really interesting aspects about how the evolution of mind and body can bring wonderful things into the world, but it also brings byproducts that can lead to distress and difficulties in life. And taking an evolutionary functional analysis to understanding emotions, cognition, and so on. Now, these are quite technical terms, and I'm going to try to explore them with you in a different way shortly. But it's just to say, really, that CFT really has these different underpinnings. I could keep on going, really, and talking about many others as well. 
but it's a highly integrative approach. And I guess to a certain extent, this also reflects in the name itself. So sometimes when we think about CFT, uh, people say, why is your approach called compassion focused therapy? Uh, why not just compassion therapy? And the second thing sometimes people say is, why do you try to claim compassion uh, as your therapy? Compassion is important in all therapies. Now, um, I think that's probably the case. We could have a debate. Are all therapies as equally compassionate as each other? But that's not the debate for today. The bit that I wanted to try to get across to you is, first of all, to say, to mention this point again, CFT is a highly integrated approach. And it can involve a whole variety of things that many of you who are therapists watching this will be doing already. So CFT, of course, includes a focus on the therapeutic relationship, collaboration, guided discovery, functional analysis, shared formulation, change through practice, emotion regulation strategies, chair work, memory rescripting, blah, blah, blah. I could keep on going on and on and on. So CFT will draw from wonderful aspects of other therapies, certainly integrate interventions that we now know are scientifically robust and helpful for people, and that many, many therapies will draw upon a whole mixture of these interventions these days, even if this intervention or these, some of these interventions didn't start with the therapy. Now, the point about all the things you can see on the page at the moment is that different therapies have different names for some of these things but it's to recognize there's a massive overlap. And for us in CFT, it's how compassion focuses, textures each of these processes. So how does compassion in CFT focus your therapeutic relationship, how you're seeing the mind of the other person, how you're being authentic, how you're being as a human being in the therapy process? How does compassion influence the way you ask questions, the way you set behavioral experiments, the way that you do chair work, the way that you do expressive writing? So in some ways you can see it's how compassion ripples through, textures, how it colours these different aspects that are often shared across psychotherapeutic processes. So this is one of the key things just to try to hold in mind here. But if I am taking you here and just thinking about the name, about how compassion focuses some of these key aspects of the psychotherapeutic process, it's also worth just going back in step for a moment so whilst uh, uh, certainly Paul Gilbert had many different uh, 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 backdrops to his training as a, a therapist and a psychologist, uh, Kleinian, Jungian, uh, he also, of course, uh, uh, had experience uh, uh, training with Beck. And one of the interesting things there, of course, within a cognitive tradition, there are some wonderful things, of course, because CBT is a fantastic model and in some ways quite simple. I don't mean simple to do, but simple in the idea that it helps us to distinguish between unhelpful thoughts and behaviours that tend to increase uh, uh, distress and unpleasant emotions. And then, of course, help uh, clients to try to generate alternative, more balanced or helpful ways of thinking about themselves and others and the world and the future, uh, but also a set of behaviours that do the opposite thing. So basically help to reduce distress, help to reduce uh, um, difficult emotions. And of course, this approach is wonderfully effective. Any of you like me who have trained in this approach will know this can be super, super helpful. However, one of the things that those of you who are therapists or those of you who have been through CBT, you might recognise that sometimes there can be some problems. For example, let's imagine that a client comes to see me and on day one, first therapy session, they're describing their problems. They're full of self-hatred, full of self-criticism, really harsh on themselves. I'm a fucking idiot. I hate myself, Chris. 
nobody else would uh, be struggling in the same way that I'm struggling. You know, I haven't been through anything bad in my life, really. So all this invalidation, hostility, and so on. And let's say that I work with this person on some of these negative thoughts and judgments for uh, five sessions, 10 sessions, 15 sessions. It doesn't really matter for how long. And let's say that they can come to me and actually say at some stage, you know what, Chris, through your help, through the work we've been doing, I can see that when I first came to you, I was blaming myself for things that just weren't my fault. I now know through your help that, of course, I was only five years old when he started to sexually abuse me. I recognize now that phrase you've been saying to me, abuse always starts in the mind of the other. I recognize that now. I was only a child when this happened. However, I still feel like there's something wrong with me. I still feel like I was born bad. I still feel like I must have contributed to this in some way. Now, this phenomenon that many of you will be familiar with is not just linked to uh, CBT. This uh, goes across uh, uh, all the psychotherapies. Now, this has been described as different things. So uh, um, sometimes this is known as the head heart lag. So you update your cognitions, your insight up here, but it doesn't change what's going on in your heart. Some people have described this as cognition emotion mismatch. Uh, in 2007, uh, Stott had a lovely paper on this, described this as rational emotional dissociation. So rational emotional dissociation. So basically, although you do update your insight, your cognitive processes, it's not changing what's going on down here with your emotions. And I think on the bottom of the page here, this common phrase in a way, I know that I'm not to blame, but I still feel like I'm to blame. Now, we know this type of head-heart lag blocks the effectiveness of therapy. And so what we're recognizing here then, going way back uh, to the 80s, this is something interesting that Paul started to notice, that some of his clients, whilst using some wonderful cognitive interventions, would make some great changes. But a bunch of his clients would be able to do that cognitive shift. They could start to see themselves and what happened differently, but it didn't change how they felt. Now, Paul got intrigued about this. Why is this happening? You know, in terms of the cognitive model, how do we understand this? Because people are doing the cognitive shift. Now, one of the things that, of course, this brings us to mind then is why might this be happening? What brings change to therapy? Because one of the things that we can begin to recognize here is that in the here and now, Paul recognized that some of these clients who seem to struggle with feeling better, even though they changed what was going on in their mind, tended to have high levels of self-criticism and shame in the here and now. So that was kind of interesting. And number two, looking back in life, often tended to come from backgrounds which there was more hostility, criticism, rejection from their parents, abuse, and so on. So there were maybe a few individual differences. But I think it is worthwhile as thinking about what, what does bring change in therapy? Now, I think we, could, of course, do a whole day just on this, a whole week just on this. But of course, these things include... A therapeutic relationship, uh, looking at evidence, developing insights, uh, doing practice-based stuff, uh, exposure work, reducing defenses. So I think there's a whole bunch of stuff that can be really, really, really helpful in therapy. But in CFT, one of the things we would also hold in mind is what do we need to know about the nature of the emotional motive systems that might provide the basis for the changes that I just mentioned on the slide before? Now, rather than just talking at you about this, I want to see if we can go through this 
on a, uh, a more experiential level. I want to see if we can do this from the inside out. So one of the things that we could do here is to use a common uh, CVT intervention, a, a thought record. So the situation here, those of you who know about cognitive behavior therapy will recognize this. So the situation I'm going to help you think about, those of you who are therapists here, is the following one. If you're not a therapist, what I'd like you to do is just to imagine a slightly different version of this. Maybe uh, your struggle with uh, helping, if you're managing a colleague, uh, your struggle to help them to improve. Or if you're a parent, maybe you could think about you struggling to help uh, uh, your child with something. But those of you who are therapists, the situation I'd like you to imagine here is that you're struggling to help your patients to feel better. And the negative thoughts that are going through your head are, I'm not up to this, I'm a crap therapist, uh, uh, other therapists would be better than me. And this is leaving you feeling anxious, ashamed, and low in self-esteem. So that's the, the background situation. Now, in cognitive therapy, of course, with these thought records, what we would then do, normally in column four, because normally this would be done left to right in columns, column four, you would try to bring some more helpful alternatives. So one is here, it's understandable to feel disappointed by this. Therapy and helping people can be really hard. This is tough. Look, everyone, nobody as a therapist wakes up in the morning and whilst lying in bed, sort of almost like thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing today? Wouldn't it be amazing if I don't help my patients? I mean, people don't think like that. That's not where the therapist is. Well, hopefully that's not where therapists are coming from. So the point is, is that if you are blocked or thwarted in your attempts, of course, that can be very painful. It's very hard. A second one here is that sometimes when we are struggling in therapy like this or many things in life, our attention goes narrow. So we focus, of course, there's a thing called the negativity bias that many of you will know. We focus on all the negatives in our life. And so here I start to focus on all the other people I'm not working on. I'm a crap therapist. So what could be helpful here is to open up your range, your vision. You know what? Although I am struggling with some people, I am helping other people. And you know what? In the past, I've also helped people too. A third thing that could be helpful here is a type of common humanity. Experienced therapists often struggle in therapy too. You know what, folks? Those of you who are therapists, Freud found therapy difficult. Beck found therapy difficult. Paul Gilbert, Linehan, Steve Hayes, uh, uh, Klein. These luminaries of our fields, you know what links all of them? They all found therapy hard. And you know why that is? Because therapy is hard. It's hard to help people with their difficulties. And then a final point here could be a behavioral one. Maybe it's helpful if I share my difficulties with a colleague, with my supervisor, I do some reading. Now, what we're going to do here, if it's okay, is try to go on the inside with this. So what I'm going to invite you to do, and only go where it feels okay to uh, go to here, folks, is just to close your eyes for a moment. So as you close your eyes, what I'd like you just to bring to mind is that situation that I was just touching on here. So for those of you who are therapists, I want you to bring to mind a time recently that you were struggling to help your patients to feel better. Again, if you're not a therapist, try to bring another situation to mind. Uh, you're struggling to help a colleague to make progress in their career. Maybe if you're a parent, you're struggling to uh, help your, uh, uh, your child to learn something. Maybe just as a friend, if you were struggling to help a, uh, a friend that you care about uh, deal with a problem. So just for a moment, bring that situation to mind. 
struggling to help somebody to make progress and that you've got negative thoughts in your mind. I'm not up to this. I'm crap. I'm a loser. Just really see if you can link in here to how this leaves you feeling, maybe anxious, maybe a bit low, maybe a sense of feeling ashamed. So really just try to feel into this and holding on to this feeling now, holding on to this situation, I'd like you to open your eyes and to read through these four statements in black on the page as if you're reading them through to help you with this difficulty. Once you finish reading them through, just on a piece of paper or just inside your own head, I'd like you to rate uh, on a scale of one to five, with one being unhelpful and five being very helpful. How helpful did you find these four statements for this difficult situation? So just write through then, just note down on a piece of paper, out of five, with five being the most helpful, from, so from one to five, and then five is the most helpful. How helpful did you find these thoughts as a way of helping you with this difficulty? Okay, scenario number two. I'm going to ask you to read through these four statements again. But before you do, this time around, what I'd like you to do is to try to read through these four statements with as much anger, hostility and criticism in your inner voice tone. So this makes sense. It's almost like um, I'd be reading it through in my head, like this first one, almost with a, a sort of sarcastic, condemning inner voice tone. Yeah, it's really understandable, Chris, that you're disappointed with this. So almost like a mocking, angry, hostile inner voice tone. So that makes sense. What I'd like you to do now, read through these four statements with as much anger, hostility and criticism in your inner voice tone. Once you finish reading them through on a piece of paper, just rate again on that scale of one to five. How helpful did you find these this time around? So five is the most helpful and one is the least helpful uh, uh, or unhelpful. Just put a, a note down. Don't do it for each individual one. Almost just do them as an average for the four. OK, then, folks. Third and final run through of this, I'm going to do a short experiential exercise just to kick us off here. So what I'd like you to do in your chairs at home is just to sit in a nice, comfortable, but alert position in your chair. You feel OK to just to close your eyes here for a moment. And we're just going to take a, uh, a few moments here just to bring awareness into the here and now. So maybe you can just notice the contact between your feet and the floor between your body and the chair. And just noticing now the sensation that's present as you breathe in and as you breathe out. 
And as you're just doing that, just see if you can begin to bring a soothing or calming breathing rhythm to your body. The sense that as you breathe out, your body is slowing down a little bit. Now what I'd like you to do, still with your eyes closed, is just to see if you can begin to bring to mind somebody in your life that you care for very deeply. So I'd like you to make this an adult, so it's not a child, it's an adult, but it's somebody who you have strong, positive feelings for, you have a good relationship with. Maybe somebody that you have a great sense of warmth, kindness, care or love towards. And I'd like you almost just to imagine that you could see this person in front of you. So this person you feel warm, kind, caring feelings towards. Almost imagine that you can see them in front of you now. Don't worry if the image is hazy. Because of these feelings of warmth, kindness and care that you have towards this person, I'd like you now just to imagine speaking to this person, but speaking to them with a warm, caring voice tone. Almost you can just imagine with this person in front of you, just saying hello to them. How are you? It's nice to see you. But really focus on that warm, caring, kind voice tone. Now what I'd like you to do is to hold on to this warm, kind, caring voice tone. You're slowly opening your eyes. And now you're going to read through these four statements in black again, but you're reading them through with this warm, kind, caring inner voice tone. And now again, once you finish reading them through, rate out of five, how helpful did you find these this time round? So how helpful did you find these this time round? Okay, then. So what we're going to do here is to see if we can uh, uh, start to explore this through just getting some feedback from you. So what I'm going to uh, ask you to do here is uh, there's a poll that's going to flash up here now. And this is for the first voice tones so for the first time you read it through, which was your normal, usual voice tone. So just on your screen, click on one of these results here. How helpful did you find it the first time around? So one of the things you can see here then, folks, is that we get a big range, don't we? So you can see here that the most common answer is three out of five. So people kind of saying, yeah, that's kind of helpful. Yeah, it's kind of OK. But now you can see there's a huge range, though, isn't there? And that's always the case. I've done this exercise or a version of it with over 10,000 different people, I think, across the world. And generally speaking, this is often the case. People normally hit that sort of, yeah, it's kind of helpful level. So that's kind of interesting. 
The next thing I want you to do is remember I asked you to, the second condition was to run through this, but to use it with a negative, critical, hostile inner voice tone. So what I'd like you to do now is just to score that on your screen. So how helpful did you find that second run through with that negative, critical voice tone? Now, as you can see there, there is still a range, isn't there? But I think it's very visually clear, isn't it? that there's a big shift here. Now, the interesting thing here, folks, is as you can see with the answers here, is that <laughs> there's a, a massive shift towards this being unhelpful. Now, I wasn't effing with you here. I didn't change the words. I didn't sort of mess around with the statements. It's exactly the same content of words here. But what do we see happens? Well, with this different emotional tone in your mind, it's almost like it bleaches or strips away the helpfulness of these statements. And one of the things that we find here then is that um, people often say that this is the case, that when they start having this negative voice tone, that it's almost like it strips it. Sometimes people even say, I, it's almost like I needed negative numbers, Chris, because it wasn't just that it was unhelpful it actually made me feel worse. It's almost like it was mocking me. I felt awful with this. And sometimes people also say, and you might have at home noticed this, that it's almost like with this negative voice tone, new words get added on to the statement. So if I take the first statement on the page, uh, saying to me, Chris, it's understandable that you feel disappointed by this. Therapy and helping people can be really hard. You stupid shit. You're like, where did those words come from? They're not on the bloody page. But it's almost like new negative terms get added on. Now, those of you who are therapists here, those of you who do use cognitive approaches, here's just two quick things just to hold in mind. Number one, when you are doing a thought record like this, how often do you ask your clients what emotional inner voice tone they're using when they read through the alternatives on the page? And then number two with this, uh, how often do you ask your clients if they're adding on new words to the end of the statements as they read them through in their own minds? Because look, folks, if this is happening to us here today, do you think it might be happening to your clients, those of you therapists who are very depressed and, and struggling with a lot of trauma memories? Well, I think so. So what we're recognizing here then is that this negative voice tone can strip things down. And this is what Paul was finding in uh, back in the 80s that, you know, he asked his clients who really had this head-heart-lag thing that I told you about, because you're reading through these statements, what emotion, what's the inner emotional voice tone that you're reading it through? With? And his clients told him, anger, disgust, disappointment, shame, rage. And if you think about it, how helpful could these statements be if that's the background emotion that's playing through you? Now, third and final here, of course, I, we did a little uh, short uh, build-up into this. So I got you just to settle down your breathing. So it's this sort of parasympathetic, vagal thing, slowing down the breath. I got you to stimulate positive emotions uh, linked to somebody that you care for. And then almost using that inner voice tone that you might speak to the person to try to use this now here. So for this third one, then with this compassionate voice tone, how helpful did you find that one overall? Now, as you can see on your screen, as you're just answering that, of course, there's always going to be a range two, isn't there? And that's always the case, folks. Uh, this doesn't land in the same way for everyone. And I'll touch on that shortly. But I think it's also quite clear to see visually, isn't it? 
that just by, remember, not changing the content of the words, but just changing the physiological backdrop, the motive and the emotions I was getting you to come at this from, look what we have. A clear, clear shift here to be the uh, overall the most helpful of the three. And so one of the things then is to recognize here then is that this is what Paul started to do with his clients. Now, I should say just before I go into that, some of you might recognize why was it the most helpful? Well, sometimes people say it's almost like the words landed, like I could hear them, that they, they, they meant something, I could hear their meaning. Some of you might have just found it was more helpful, not so much because of the words, almost because you felt a bit more at ease with this situation. Now, one of the things taking you back here is to recognize actually uh, Paul's background in this. So with that third poll that I just showed you here, uh, the, the one Paul tried to do this with his clients, the ones that were having this negative, critical, angry inner voice tone that I told you about, Paul tried to do this with them. So he got them to try to read through their statements with as much warmth, kindness and care in their inner voice tone that they could generate. And guess what? Many of them hated it. What are you getting me to do? I don't know this feeling. I don't like this feeling. This feeling makes me feel scared. I don't like it. Stop it. It's alien. And there, folks, is the birth of CFT. It wasn't called CFT at that time, but it was with that wonderful insight that a type of positive emotion that many of you found most helpful when you were just doing this exercise was either blocked or actually made some of Paul's clients feel worse. And Paul was fascinated about this. Why is that the case? Why is it that the type of voice tone that you would have when you speak to your loved one, someone you care about, if you try to use that same inner voice tone, that same feeling towards yourself, you don't like it, it makes you feel worse, it's blocked. Now, one of the things is to recognize, uh, going back in time, that for many of Paul's clients, it wasn't just that they came from backgrounds in which they'd experienced criticism, rejection, abuse, and so on. They often tended to come from backgrounds in which they had had received very little warmth, kindness, love, and affection from their early experiences with caregivers, friends, and so on. And of course, we now know those two things are not just the same. The presence of negative things in your past, uh, abuse, criticism, rejection, hostility, physical harm, that's not the same as the lack of affection, kindness, and care. And the point is, if I just make it personal for a moment, you know what? I could come from a background in which um, I am beaten, I, I'm physically harmed, I'm abused, I'm, I'm criticized and rejected by my parents, but I am also at times hugged, kissed, and told that I'm loved. So can you see I could have both of those things there? But I could come from a background in which I get all the negative stuff, the physical abuse, the, the rejection, the harm from my parents and family, but I never get hugged. I never get kissed. I never get told that I'm loved and that I'm special. And can you see they're not the same experiences? And what we know, of course, they land, they hit your brain and your physiological systems in a different way. They're not just the same brain system or the same branch of your physiology that gets stimulated when you go through the negative and when you have or don't have the presence of the positive. So it's a real recognition of this. 
And I guess where CFT started then, folks, was with that simple understanding that for many people, understandably, a type of positive emotion linked to kindness, care, certainly into uh, love and affection and this attachment, secure attachment area was either blocked or absent. And CFT started in a way, a very behavioral way, getting clients to practice again and again and again, warm inner voice tones, warm, kind, caring inner voice tones. And in a way, those of you who are therapists, all therapies do a version of exposure, uh, exposing people to things that they find difficult. Now, mostly, though, when we think about exposure therapy in therapy broadly, that's normally to things that even if you don't struggle with that thing, you kind of understand why the person struggles. For example, you personally don't have to be as a therapist scared of heights to understand why your client might be scared of heights. You personally don't have to be scared of spiders to kind of understand why your clients might struggle with spiders. Uh, you don't have to personally be scared of uh, uh, small spaces like a, an elevator or a lift to have an appreciation that other people might. The insight that we're bringing here maybe in CFT is that maybe we have to expose people to positive emotions, that you can't assume that everyone can do positive emotions because they can't. And so therefore, CFT started with exposing people to this and then drawing from wonderful, wonderful interventions from Western psychotherapeutic traditions. So many different therapies, as I said before, the multiple lineages, uh, but also looking to the East and Buddhism, uh, which for uh, two and a half thousand years, of course, has been focusing on practicing uh, various ways to stimulate positive emotion, compassion, uh, uh, metta, so loving kindness. CFT sort of integrates then across these two uh, uh, broad spaces to be a science-based approach to working with uh, human distress and trying to focus on uh, developing flourishing. So I hope I'm giving you a little bit of a background here into how CFT started. And I guess where it's really taking us to, just as we uh, move into the break, is that if I'm talking to you about what uh, about compassion and compassion-focused therapy, of course, it's probably helpful if we think about what we mean by compassion. Now, interestingly, when we do this, if I was with you in the room, I'd be writing this up on a, 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 a whiteboard, getting you to shout it out. Um, if I was to be doing this in a group, I'd be asking them as well. In individual sessions, I'd be doing this. If I was going into a business and talking about compassion, I'd ask them. Maybe here, one of the things that you could try to do is just to type into the chat room. What do you associate with compassion? What other words come to mind when you think about compassion? So just take a moment, maybe just to almost like what are the synonyms? What are the alternate uh, words that you might hear have? So you can see some of them coming here. Uh, warmth, kindness, care, love, empathy, self-kindness. So there's a whole variety of these. And so one of the things that we can begin to recognize here is that this is often the case. People come up with these wonderful, wonderful terms just like you are. But here's the thing. You're being really kind to me, too, because most of you are giving, of course, positive connotations to the word compassion. But here's a question I'd also like you to just to respond to in the chat room. Do you have any negative beliefs about the word compassion? So just to type in, do you have any negative beliefs about the word compassion? If it's not you personally, maybe if you're a therapist, your clients. So here, wow, isn't this interesting? We've got one-sided, belittling, pity. Um, it can be uh, patronizing, fragile. 
Uh, wow, weak, weakness, uh, again, weakness, patronizing, condescending, and sincere. Wow, folks. Now, isn't this interesting? Well, I find it interesting. You might not. But there's very few words in the English language, if you think about it, in which when you mention it to people to start with, there are wonderful positive connotations that people have. But just at the surface, poking just above the surface or just below the surface, lots of negative associations can also be there too. So there's very few words in the English language that do this, where you can move from such high positive emotion to negative emotion so quickly. And so one of the interesting things that this is the case with compassion too, and in my sessions uh, with my clients, but also if I'm going into businesses and organizations working, uh, thinking about how we can promote compassion and leadership and, and through the organization, I'll also ask this question too. Do you have any negative beliefs about this? And so one of the things that you can see here, just as I've got on this next slide, this is often the case. Those words in green pop up very quickly, but so do the words in red. And so what do we have to do in CFT? Well, we have to help you to understand how do we define compassion? And so in CFT, this is the definition that we use. So this one in black in the middle here, compassion is a sensitivity to the suffering of self and others with a commitment to try to relieve it and prevent it. So this is our central definition in compassion uh, in CFT. Now, the reason why you've got a green bit and a blue bit under, uh, above and beneath it is to say that this definition for us splits into what we call the two psychologies of compassion. So the first psychology of compassion links to the first line of the definition, a sensitivity to the suffering of self and others. Now, this first psychology then involves being able to notice, engage with, tolerate, move towards, understand difficulties and distress, whether that's in somebody else or whether that's in you. Now, the second psychology relates to almost the second line of their definition. This is then the ability to engage in wise action to reduce or prevent distress and difficulties. So the first psychology is being, we call this a, a, an engagement psychology, moving you towards, engaging you with distress and suffering, helping you to tolerate and understand it. But if you were to just do that and then leave people there, that might not be the most compassionate thing. So the second psychology is a type of action psychology. It's developing the skills, the wisdom, the way to begin to alleviate distress. And the point about this then is, uh, well, a number of things. So the first thing that I can uh, just to, uh, in a way, point on really is that um, you, you need here, if we think about some of those negative terms, this definition actually helps us to sidestep them. So think about this situation that's going on across the world at the moment. To be a nurse or a doctor in this situation, think about it, it's a compassionate motivation they're doing here, being sensitive to somebody's uh, suffering with COVID and trying to do something to alleviate the distress. Would we describe doctors and nurses here as pitying, as weak, as wishy-washy? No way. They're goes courage. This is a courageous thing to be doing. So can you see courage and strength often sit alongside compassion? Here's another example. A firefighter running into a burning building to save a child who's trapped. Can you see that meets the definition of compassion? They're sensitive to the suffering of the person in the building and the second bit that they're doing taking action, trying to save, trying to reduce the distress for the person, going into the building and saving them. But again, would you ever describe a firefighter as weak, 
wishy-washy, pitying. Again, it's not the words that we use to describe this. How do we often describe a firefighter? Strong, courageous. And of course, those of you who are therapists and those of you who have been through your own distress, your own suffering in life, if you think about self-compassion and having to move towards your own trauma memories, your own shame, your, the awfulness that might have happened in life, would you ever describe people doing this as weak? Does it take weakness, uh, uh, being wishy-washy, uh, pitying? Is that the quality that you need to move in to meet your own distress? No. It takes strength. It takes courage. And so the point here then, folks, is a recognition here that often compassion comes with these things. So what I want to do just here is give you a little bit more of a feel for this definition and what I mean by this definition of compassion. And one way that I can do that is to talk about it uh, as the many faces of compassion. So you might have seen this, those of you who are interested in compassion, you might have seen this in the literature before. One of the things here then is to recognize that compassion can turn up in many, many different ways. Um, so let me uh, get you to think about this uh, uh, for yourselves. So imagine that uh, later on today, you are sat in your living room watching your favorite film or watching uh, a TV show that you're really enjoying. Now, there is a child that you care for. It could be your son or daughter. It could be a nephew, a niece, a, a friend's child who's playing outside in the backyard. And let's say that as they're playing in the backyard, they fall over, they trip and they, they cut themselves. They cut their knee on the concrete and they're crying. They're in distress. Now, the interesting thing there, of course, is to think about what would you do here? So what would you do in this situation uh, from a compassion stance? Now. Um, you might actually just want to start typing this in the chat room. What would you do in this situation? I promise you, it's not a trick question. What would you do in this situation if there is a child who's fallen over and hurt themselves in this way? What sort of action would you take given the situation? So many of you are uh, going exactly to some of the stuff, consoling, rescue them, scoot them up and give them a hug, uh, see if they're okay. So exactly, you're spot on. Now, one of the bits that we go back to this definition, though, is that what the first bit, remember the first psychology of compassion was a type of engagement psychology, being sensitive to the suffering. Now, interestingly there then, before you go and give them a hug, you offer them supportive words and anything like that, what do you need? Well, first of all, you need to notice that the child is in pain. If you're so captured by your film or your TV show that you don't even hear that they're crying, that they're in pain, nothing else is going to happen. So you need to notice that they're distressed. That's first psychology. You also need to be bothered about them. So if you hate this child for whatever reason, it might well be that lots of the wonderful ideas you've got coming in, folks, that might not happen. So you need to be bothered by, motivated by their distress, by their well-being. And then, of course, I guess you could keep on sitting, watching TV on your sofa and just sort of shout out from the sofa helpful things that they could do. But of course, more likely here is you get up off your sofa and here you're physically moving towards them. If it was self-compassion, you would be psychologically moving towards your own distress. 
And as you walk outside and you see like this picture here, uh, a child who's in pain, and let's say you can see blood uh, coming from their knee. Of course, it's not like an alien thing. You don't think, what the fuck is this red liquid coming from their body? You, you know that for them to be bleeding, you know, this is blood. For it to be blood, you know, they must be cut. And, you know, they're cut. They must be in pain. So you already have some empathic understanding about what's going on here. So that's all first psychology. And then remember, second psychology, that's trying to take wise action. So here, of course, it might well be that you go across to the child, you go down to their level, depending on their age and their size, you pick them up. What's your voice tone like? Well, your voice tone is soft and soothing. So you don't go, there, there, it's fine. It won't. You don't shout at this child because you have an empathic understanding. You need a softer kind of voice tone. You're using words that are reassuring and validating. Gosh, did that hurt? Who's a brave girl? Who's a brave boy? It'll be okay. Let me help you with that. And maybe behaviorally, you clean up the wound, you put a plaster on it. So can you see here? This is then the one face of compassion. This is what you might do in this situation. Now, in this situation, and again, you can just type it into the chat room. What emotions or feelings might you be having as you engage in this compassionate action. So inside you, what are you feeling? What emotions might you be having during this time? So Natasha's saying worry, uh, Fatima's saying concern, uh, worry, sad for the child, nurturing, concern, uh, anxious, sad. It might be that some of you are feeling warmth, love. Some of you might be feeling guilty because you think, you know, I knew I shouldn't have been watching TV. I knew I should have been taking better care. Some of you, if you don't like blood, you might be feeling disgust. So you might have different emotional experiences, but here's one face of compassion. Now, let's imagine that half an hour later, this child's fine. Uh, they're, they're running around again. You're back watching your TV show, your film again. Now, this time round, from your TV show, you look up and you see this child walking towards a plug socket with a metal fork in their hand. Now, in this situation, folks, do you do the same thing? Soft, gentle voice tone. Come here, my love. Everything will be okay. Come and give me a hug. You know, uh, gosh, what a brave girl. Is that the kind of thing that you're saying? <laughs> no, hopefully not. Because this time, rather than being quiet and gentle voice tone, a loud shouting voice tone. Are you slowly moving across from your sofa to, to the child? No, you're probably running, sprinting. And when you get there, do you gently pull them back? Or could you imagine that you'd actually maybe shock them quite a bit? But think about it, folks. It's still compassion. Think about the definition that we were going off. A sensitivity to the suffering of self and others with a commitment to try to relieve and prevent suffering. So can you see this is still a version of compassion because you can see into the fact that this would cause suffering and you're preventing it. And so one of the things in this situation here, then, is this is quite a different face of compassion, I think you'll see. And let's just see again if you can type into the chat room. What types of feelings or emotions would you be having this time round as your child is about to electrocute themselves? So fear, panic, fear, anxiety. And how about those of you, if it was the fifth bloody time in the last minute this child had been trying to stick this fork in the plug socket, what are you feeling there? <laughs> yeah, anger, anger, frustration, irritation. Now, the reason why I'm highlighting this is that, first of all, 
many people don't see this second version that I've just been taking you through as a version of compassion. They see compassion just as the soft, gentle, warm version. And I can promise you in a way that is going to be an issue for you as a therapist or you as someone just interested in compassion. If you only see compassion as soft and gentle, because I promise you, that's not what you always need. Sometimes that is the version of compassion you need, but it's not always what you need. And the recognition here then is compassion has many different faces it's to in a way bring this example that i was just taking you through can you see how it's a bit similar to the firefighter example that compassion actually can be rigorous it can be strong and the reason why i'm highlighting the different emotions because some uh, uh compassion very famous compassion researchers and, uh, uh, and theorists talk about compassion as an emotion now from our point of view in cft we disagree for us Compassion is not an emotion because just think of all the different emotions across those two scenarios that we've just mentioned. So we had in the first one, warmth, love, concern, fear, uh, uh, disgust, uh, guilt, shame, maybe. And then this last one, panic, fear, irritation. So can you see it's very difficult to describe uh, compassion as an emotion? Can you see there we go from high positive emotions all the way down in a way to negative emotion. Now, remember in psychology, positive emotions don't mean good emotions and negative don't mean bad. They just mean the valence of them, the, the experience of them is, is pleasurable versus unpleasant. So can you see compassion can involve a variety of emotions? And so what we're saying here is for us in CFT, it's not that compassion is emotionless, but that compassion can bring many different emotions because it's not an emotion. It starts as a motive, a motivation to alleviate distress, uh, a motive to tune in and relieve distress and suffering. And one of the things that we can recognize here then is compassion can bring many, many different emotions. And some of you will recognize this. It's actually compassion as a motive that has been at the heart of many of the really important social change movements that our planet has seen. So whether it was the fight for racial equality in the US or the UK, which of course is still going on and still needs to continue, whether it was the suffragette movement in the UK, the, the fight for equality of uh, women's voting rights, which of course we've still got a long way to go, or of course the fight for climate uh, protection to, to, to protect our climate. If you think about all of those social movements, the leaders of those, people who are really working hard with this, you don't see them just walking around with big smiles on their faces, full of just positive emotions and joy the whole time. What you recognize there then is, if you just take Greta Thunberg when she was speaking at the UN a few years back, was she smiles and all full of warmth and love? No, she was angry. She was pissed off. And the point is, folks, anger can be part of your compassion when compassion is seen as a motivation. Does that make sense to people? This is quite an important thing here. You don't have to like the thing uh, that you're being compassionate towards necessarily. And anger can actually be part of your desire to alleviate suffering too. And the key thing here is when it comes to self-compassion, because of course, imagine that if compassion involved liking and positive emotions, let's imagine now that you're struggling with depression, you're full of shame and self-hatred. Can you see there in that situation what would it be like to try to be compassionate with yourself? Can you see if compassion is a positive emotion? It's all about warmth and love and care. 
Can you see how that's very difficult when you're depressed and you're down? But if compassion is a motive to be sensitive to your own distress and learn ways to alleviate that, can you see that is possible when you're depressed? So the point is, I don't have to like myself to start being compassionate with myself. In CFT, we often say, don't worry about the emotions, the positive emotions. They will follow in time. Start off with the motive. That's the key bit. We start off with motive. Start off with intention. So one of the bits here then is that we can start to move from this. And I don't have time today. There's so many things, of course, I can't let you know today. But with this definition of compassion, with the two psychologies I split up, each of these are built upon six competencies. So for the first psychology, the green one here, these competencies are care for well-being, sensitivity, sympathy, distress tolerance, empathy, and non-judgment. Now, the point is we can build, you can cultivate each of those competencies that scientifically we know you can strengthen people in each of those areas. And that's what we would do in CFT. And then in the second psychology, remember, that's about wise action, trying to alleviate distress. There are six competencies here that we can work across. So CFT is a multimodal therapy. So a little bit like Lazarus talked about as a, uh, he developed multimodal therapy in the 70s or the 80s. So rather than just focusing on one domain of cognition or emotional behavior, CFT then goes across multiple modalities in which we can bring change. So we can work on attention training and mindfulness. We can work on cognition and mentalizing. So you're thinking so we can use that as a way to alleviate your distress. We can work on cultivating certain emotions. So sometimes those emotions will be emotions that you're struggling to experience like sadness uh, or anger. Sometimes it will be building positive emotions like warmth, kindness, and care. We will do lots of behavioral and exposure work, often linked to courage in compassion-focused therapy. We do lots of imagery work, so we would focus on helping people to cultivate images that are helpful and supportive. And we also have a, a big focus on the sensory and, and body-based practices, so whether that's breathing rhythm work, getting the vagal system online, a facial expression and a voice tone work, body movement work, yoga martial arts, uh, acting techniques. So we do lots of different work. So the point here is there's many different ways in to cultivating a compassionate mind. Uh, and so in CFT, we're utilizing some of the wonderful interventions, the wonderful modalities to be able to bring about change. Now, with that also being said, it's also really important to let you know CFT is not just about self-compassion. We talk about the three flows of compassion. So one flow of compassion is this top one, where you are motivated to help somebody else. So the flow is from you to somebody else. A second flow of compassion is when you're distressed, can you seek out and receive the kindness and care from somebody else to you? Now, it turns out that actually that flow of compassion could be tricky for many of us. We, we can struggle to show our vulnerability and receive kindness and care from other people. And then the final flow here, I don't necessarily mean linear way, but the final flow on the page here is self-compassion. So can I stimulate this motivation from the inside and flip it back to me? So can I be sensitive to my own distress, find out ways to take wise action to alleviate it? So each of these flows can be cultivated in different ways. They each activate similar but different patterns of physiology and psychological states and it's really key then that we focus on all three of these flows. So CFT does lots of work in prisons and forensic settings where, of course, 
self-compassion might be important, but so is compassion to other people. So it's just to recognize here, it's really important for all three of these flows to be cultivated. And why is this important? Well, have a look at this graph. Uh, on the left-hand side here, you have self-compassion. So on the left-hand side here, from low levels of self-compassion to high. At the bottom here, this horizontal uh, level here, we have here on the left, low care seekers, and here, high care seekers. Now, if you look at the whole graph, who are the people scoring the lowest on self-compassion here? Well, they're the people who are low at seeking care for themselves. But can you see here on the explanation, they are high in giving care to other people. Now, those of you watching at home, do, does that sound familiar to you at all? Do you recognize that maybe in yourself, the family members or colleagues, people who are very good at giving care out but struggle to receive care in? And the point being there is, is that actually that might be associated then with difficulties in being compassionate to yourself. Now, look, who scores the highest in levels of self-compassion? Well, it's the people here who are very good at giving care out. But look on the graph, too. They are uh, good at care seeking. So they're good at care giving, but they're also good at care seeking. So does that make sense to people? This whole idea here is that we need the three flows coordinating together here. And one of the things that we will recognize, of course, for many people working in the care system, you will recognize here that uh, we're very good at caregiving because that's what we've been taught to do often. But we're not so good necessarily at receiving care. And of course, the good old adage, you can't pour from an empty cup. And so one of the things that we need to hold in mind, of course, is this whole bit about how do we help people to get better at being able to seek out and receive care and compassion from others? And of course, teach and train people how to be more compassionate, to them, uh, compassionate with themselves. One of the things just to recognize here as we start to go through this is that when it does come to self-compassion, there is a, a huge literature now, growing literature, to show that there are many benefits from cultivating greater levels of, uh, uh, of self-compassion. So we know that when you're higher in self-compassion, this is associated with lower levels of things like self-criticism, worry, negative emotions, uh, mental health problems. And also that when you're high in self-compassion, this also is associated to beneficial things like creativity, uh, greater positive emotions and well-being, flourishing, uh, taking responsibility for difficulties in life. So it's not to say that self-compassion is a panacea. There are no panaceas in the world, folks, but it's just to recognize that there are all sorts of benefits here. It's also to see that actually when we're being self-compassionate or compassionate to others, this is like a pattern. So when you, if you think about being compassionate to somebody else, of course, what happens here is that if we think back to that child who cut their leg, we pay attention in a certain way to their distress. It influences our empathy and what we think about them. Compassionate mind would influence your motivation, your desire to alleviate them. We've got lots of wonderful studies now to show that when you're being compassionate to yourself and others, this changes your physiology, your vagal system, your brain systems light up in a different way. Remember, we said that compassion brings different emotions and behavior to it. So it's just to recognize here, whether you're being compassionate to yourself or to others, this is like a pattern in each of these areas we can work on in therapy to help you to become more compassionate with yourself or others. But remember, CFT isn't just about suffering. It's not just about distress. Of course, here, one of the things we want to do is engage in people's distress. We want to alleviate it and we do want to prevent it because that's in the definition. But think about people that you love and care for the most in life. If they're distressed, of course, you'd want to 
uh, hope for them, for their suffering to be relieved. Of course, you'd want that. But if you think about it, I don't think you'd be that happy if you knew that their distress and suffering, uh, suffering reduced and they're just left in a neutral state for the rest of their life. No, when you're in a compassionate, caring motivation to somebody, you also want them to flourish. You want them to be happy. You want them to have meaningful relationships in their life. So CFT is also uh, focused on the flourishing aspect. And a number of studies now are showing that when you take people through compassionate mind training and compassion-focused therapy, it's not just that distress reduces, shame, self-criticism, mental health symptoms, but you also get a significant increase in things like well-being and positive emotions too. So in a way, we're, we're hitting on both of these bits. Those of you who are interested in positive psychology, CFT has a nice overlap with positive psychology too. Now, one thing that I, because again, like I said, I could, I could go on and on and share so many different aspects of CFT. And of course, I can't do it justice in two hours, well, even less than two hours with a short break and leaving 20 minutes for questions. But what I want to take you through is a, a, a model in CFT, which uh, a CFT becomes quite well known for, which is linked to uh, uh, emotions and an emotional model, which can be quite helpful, whether in therapy or just for all of us to hold in mind. So there's lots of different ways that you can understand emotions. So why did emotions evolve? Well, one thing that we hold in CFT, because it's a, an evolutionary psychology-shaped approach, rather than clustering emotions in different ways that have gone before it, CFT clusters emotions based upon that evolved function, what we think they evolved to do. So there's one set of emotions, like anger and anxiety, which we think evolved to help you to focus on threats and to protect yourself and others. A second set of emotions evolved, like uh, excitement and joy, which help you to focus on doing and achieving things. And then a third set of emotions that evolved, like contentment and uh, calmness, that help you to slow down, to rest, to recuperate, and also seem to be important in the process of caring. Now, the way that we share this model in therapy or just generally visually is like this. So we call this the three system model uh, or the three circle model. And the idea here then is just to recognize, and I'll take you through very briefly, each of these systems in turn. Now, I should say each of these systems are biologically and evolutionary rooted, but they are also open to learning. So social learning, uh, classical conditioning. Uh, operant conditioning. So they're learning systems. So basically what goes on in your life through early life all the way through to adulthood shapes how these systems work. So anyway, let me take you through this to start with. So I'm going to start with the red one. We call this the threat system for short. So this is the threat system. Now this system evolved in all animals to do a couple of really important things. Detect threats and dangers in the world. And number two, make you do something about them to get to safety. Now, this system has a variety of menus that it draws upon to help you. On a basic level uh, and a physiological level, there is an activating branch to this and an inhibiting branch. Now, the activating branch is linked to your sympathetic nervous system. And behaviorally, of course, it's linked to more activating defenses like fight and flight. So this is more of an energizing aspect of your defensive threat system. But there's also an inhibiting branch to this threat system, which is linked to your parasympathetic, your ancient parasympathetic, probably on the dorsal side, 
in which you get uh, uh, inhibiting responses. So freeze states, uh, some types of submissive behavior or shutdown states that you might find that can come up in trauma cases, some types of depressions and so on. So uh, uh, you will see here that you've got these different branches of your autonomic nervous system to regulate difficulties. Now, the threat emotions linked to this system are things like anger, anxiety, disgust, and then the more complex emotions, things like shame. And um, one of the things you can recognize here, rather than just talking you through, I can maybe use pictures to help you to see. So it would be your threat system most likely that if you went out for a meal tonight and you're walking home afterwards and it's in the dark and you're on your own and you take your normal shortcut home and suddenly you're confronted by these young men with their hoods up, it's likely to be your threat system that gets activated. So inside your body, it's threat physiology. Your heart rate would go up, breathing would get quicker. It's linked to the HPA axis, so the hypothalamic uh, um, pituitary adrenal axis. So this is your stress systems getting revved up. Behaviorally, what do you want to do here? Well, probably most of us want to move away. We want to get into flight, avoidance. What emotion are you likely to be feeling here? Probably anxiety or fear. And in terms of visual attention, what happens here? Well, you start to get quite narrow. You start to focus on, have they seen me? Are they holding any uh, weapons in their hands? And in terms of what happens to your thinking here, it gets shaped up by threat system too. So you start having worst case scenario outcomes. They're going to hurt me. Uh, uh, they're going to harm me. They're going to mug me. And it doesn't actually matter, of course, whether these young men are meeting on the streets for choir practice because it's COVID times and they can't meet in tours. Your threat system won't go to that as the uh, initial explanation. You will go to worst case scenarios. You will make mountains out of molehills. You will overgeneralize because your threat system designs your cognition to do this. It's adaptive. Uh, there is a, a phrase that some of you will know, an evolutionary saying, you can have lunch many, many, many times in life, but you can only be lunch once. And the whole point, of course, is, is your threat system is designed to make better safe than sorry predictions. So better safe than sorry thinking. But it's not just the physicality of harm that is tricky here uh, and situations like these types of things. It's also social ones. So one of the things that we know is that our threat system can light up like a Christmas tree when we feel that we're being excluded or we're being rejected. We can have this strong sense of threat system being activated where we feel that we're, you know, we're experiencing bullying, uh, where we feel that people are against us. And of course, we can have an internal sense of this, whether I've been told this by my parents or teachers, or whether I begin to develop an internal world in which I feel that I'm useless, I'm bad, I'm stupid. So threat system can get triggered in many, many, many different ways. And of course, when your threat system is triggered, it starts to influence these different domains. So it narrows your attention, negative thoughts, uh, worry, rumination, self-criticism. Uh, your physiology is layered in a stress-based physiology and so on. So often in therapy, we're working with people's threat systems. Uh, it's often, of course, people struggle with their threat system. And that's why, in part, they're coming to therapy. But let me take you on to a second system, so the blue one. So the blue one is uh, linked to a type of positive emotion. So the blue one is called the drive system for short. And the point about the drive system is, is that you could be amazing at uh, uh, defending yourself, fighting, running away, and all that kind of stuff. But animals need more than being good at threat to survive. Animals need to get things. So this drive system is linked to incentives and resources. So it's about getting things. You can see with the words here 
uh, wanting, pursuing, achieving. This is an activating system. So it's also linked to your sympathetic nervous system. We think this is probably dopaminergic as well, the system. And it's linked to emotions like excitement and joy. So again, rather than just speaking at you, let me use examples here. So imagine those of you who are in the UK or elsewhere, imagine that actually tonight you win the lottery. So now you are uh, 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 you own a fortune. You know, in the UK, you're worth £10 million on the lottery. You just won this. This would be your drive system operating here. I mean, if you think about this scenario, so you're just lying down on the sofa tonight, uh, you're, you're watching the news, and then suddenly the lottery results just flash up. And you've just worked out you're, you know, a multi-millionaire person now. How likely is it that you just turn to your family member or your partner, you look at your watch and say, you know, gosh, it's half past eight. You know what? I'm really bored. I just feel like, yeah, just bored. I think I might just go to bed early. <laughs> you know, it's highly unlikely, isn't it? What's more likely is you don't stay lying down on that sofa. You're jumping up and down. You're shouting. You're screaming. Very animated, high positive emotions, a surge of energy through your body. You start to imagine and think about what am I going to spend my money on? This is your drive system. It's your drive system that kicks in when you pass that test that you really wanted to get a good mark on. It's your drive system that you get when you um, get that uh, promotion that you're looking for at work. Or, you know, when you go for a new job that you really, really want and you get the good news, the phone call saying you've got the job. That's your drive system. That's your drive system. It's when you are successful. So here, Mo Farah, one of our wonderful athletes, getting gold medal in the London Olympics. But also you can get drive system, the sense of joy and excitement, being with other people. So it's that anticipatory pleasure. Uh, one of the things that we know in the UK, those of you who have been reading the news or based here, uh, we pretty much had, uh, well, certainly for me living in London, had Christmas cancelled yesterday uh, because of covid but prior to that, of course, what some people were really in is this drive system anticipatory pleasure. So many of you might know this. You know, uh, when you're looking forward to Christmas, you know, like as a young child, you used to get super excited about Christmas, even though it wasn't Christmas yet, so you couldn't sleep. That's your drive system. Many adults still get very excited about Christmas. I'm going to see my, my family, my friends, and people. That's very much drive system. Uh, the day before you go on holiday or the week before you go on holiday, that anticipatory excitement about being on the beach or having a great time, that's your drive system, this wonderful source of positive emotions. Now, we also have another emotion system that's worthwhile talking to you about. And the interesting thing here then is that there is a positive emotion system that is lovely. It's called the soothing system. So this green one's called the soothing system. It's linked to positive emotions, but it's a different type of positive emotion. So let me give you an example. Imagine that you're lying on a beautiful beach. There's no threat system, no danger. You're not trying to achieve anything. But if I asked you, how are you feeling? It's unlikely that you just shrug your shoulders and say, don't feel anything, Chris. Or if you're sat on the sofa next to a loved one, no threat system, no danger. You're not trying to achieve anything. Again, if I just said to you, how are you feeling? So unlike you just shrug your shoulder and say nothing, because in both of those scenarios, what you might find for yourself is that people describe things like, I feel calm, peaceful, content, connected. Now you might hear in my voice tone here, they're still positive emotions, but they're lower energy in the body. That's partly because they link to a different branch of your nervous system. So this is far more linked to uh, the endorphins and most likely to the opiates 
We also think that this system is very much linked to your parasympathetic nervous system. Now, interestingly, sometimes your parasympathetic nervous system is known as rest and digest. Some of you would have heard of that, rest and digest. Now, why is that important? Well, if you only have these two systems, the red and the blue, remember, often they take energy. Remember fight or flight with the red, the blue system chasing down things, gaining things all the time? They take a lot of energy. Now, for energy, you need calories. For calories, you need food. And of course, we know on this planet, food has often been scarce for many animals. So what's one way of conserving energy is to have a system that allows you, when you're safe enough in the environment, to switch off those energy states to rest, facilitate digestion, and also to allow the body to repair and recuperate. Now, one interesting thing to ask all of you, particularly those of you who are in more uh, uh, countries linked to consumerism, capitalism, and so on, how much do we value in our cultures and those cultures this green system, this slowing down, the importance of rest, uh, recuperation, and so on? So that's one thing that's kind of interesting. Now, the second thing about this system is that we know that it's very simplistic, but when your parasympathetic system is online, it naturally helps to downregulate your sympathetic nervous system. So interestingly, that it's, it's, it's often talked about as the break. It's too simplistic to talk about it like that, folks. But what we do know is that actually when your parasympathetic system is engaged, your heart rate reduces, blood pressure reduces, your body begins to repair and so on. So this system, why there are arrows, is that when you're in the green system, it naturally helps to calm red and blue or at least to regulate them enough. But the other thing to tell you about the green system is, from an evolutionary point of view, we think as mammals started to come into the world, they adapted this backdrop of the green system to bring it in to be highly associated now and sensitive to signals of kindness, care and affection. And let me just take you through this very briefly, because it might seem a little bit random. But if you think about cute little turtles hatching on a beach, if you've ever seen this on TV before, what you will recognize is there's tons of them. And as they hatch, they have locomotion. So they can start moving off towards the sea. And sadly, it's not like Disney film. Uh, you get animals of the air, the land and the sea waiting to eat them. And it's quite horrible to see. And it's estimated that only one or two out of 100 will survive. So mum might lay something like 70 to 100 eggs, but maybe only one of them will make it through to maturity. Now, the interesting thing there is, is that whilst mum and dad put a lot of energy in to lay so many eggs and maybe to protect them before they hatch, once they hatch, turtles are on their own. They disperse, they're on their own. And of course, where are mum and dad? Well, they're long gone. Now, as a reptile, this is their evolutionary strategy. They have lots of offspring. They're born with lots of abilities to, to move and to swim already, but there isn't much parental protection and nurturance for turtles. But interestingly, mammals, of course, and of course we are one, we come into the world later than reptiles. And what do we do? Well, we bring a different reproductive strategy because rather than having 70 or 100, what happens with us? We have a few. But the key thing is, what do we do differently with our few? And this is, of course, where it comes to nurture, care. So we put in a huge amount of energy to care for, to look after. We feed. We keep our children safe and warm. We teach them. We create uh, uh, um, environments that are safe uh, for them. And so the interesting thing here is, is you have a big shift here. And to have that different shift, because think about it, to do that, 
the parent needs to have a different type of motivation and a sensitivity to their child in a different way. So you need new brain systems to shift into this thing of caring for offspring. But the other thing, of course, is, is that think about it. Many other animals, when they get close to each other, that can actually trigger their threat system. They get into fight and flight and that sort of stuff. If you look at this picture here from mammals, uh, certainly for us, this uh, mum and baby here, you might have that sense just at home. What sound do you want to make when you see this mum holding her baby? And for many of you, that sense of, ah, you know you can say that because it feels a certain way. So this isn't just the absence of threat. So in mammals, then, when we're close and physical contact like this, you have a downregulation of threat system, but also you have an upregulation of the green. Does that make sense? This is linked to the positive presence here. And it's really important for us to recognize this because there is a shift in reproductive strategy. Now, if you take the evolutionary ideas here, one of the most common sayings, the well-known saying linked to evolutionary theory to Darwin's wonderful work is survival of the fittest. But Darwin didn't coin that term and he certainly didn't mean it like this. But if you think of survival of the fittest, often what images come to your mind? Well, they're images of we survive because we're strong and we compete. Some of you will know uh, the author Louis Cozzolino did some wonderful work in the psychotherapeutic literature. In one of his books, he says, you know what, we shouldn't really describe it as survival of the fittest. It's far more accurate for us to describe survival of the nurtured. We only survive because somebody nurtured us. And one of the crucial things here that I want to get across to you is that uh, when we start thinking about this model, it's to recognize with the green system then, can you see the learning conditions for the green system are in the type and quality of the nurturance, kindness and care we get from our parents, from our siblings, from our friends as we go through life. And so this system develops when we're lucky enough to have lots of those inputs. But going back to what I discussed previously with Paul and his work with his clients early on in the 80s, can you see now why it might well be that some of his clients struggle to generate a kind, caring inner voice tone? And does it make sense to you why many of them actually had a very negative, angry, threat system-based inner voice tone? Because, of course, what was the learning conditions that influenced their threat system? Well, being bullied, being abused, rejected, and so on in their background. It's not anyone's fault. Now, what I'm going to do just for time here is to ask you, rather than actually getting into discussions here, what I'm going to get you to do on your piece of paper at home, I want you to draw out the three circles, but before you do, I want you to draw them out so that the size of the circle represents how much of that system you've been experiencing during December. So we just take this month, draw out the size of the circle. So the bigger you draw out the circle, you've been having more of that going on in your life during this month. So just go ahead and do that. We'll just give you 20 seconds or so. Now, of course, each day is going to be slightly different and you might have differences when you're at work and uh, when you're at home. But one of the things that I want you to think about here is if you just to draw them out just quickly here, how would they be balanced? Are they all roughly the same or are they different? Now, interestingly, when we start to think this about this with our clients, often what we find here is a version of this, a massive red system 
Now, the blue system can be quite big. So sometimes people draw it really big. Uh, if you're experiencing a, a manic episode, for example, or you're struggling with addictions, perfectionism and so on, sometimes the blue system is massive. But of course, if you are depressed, <coughs> excuse me, what happens in depression? Key symptoms of depression is anhedonia, the inability to derive pleasure from things. So sometimes the blue can be very small in uh, um, in CFT, uh, sorry, CFT for people who are struggling with depression. And then if you think about it for those of you who are therapists, some of your clients who've had very difficult backgrounds, but many of us will just recognize how often, how big will people grow, uh, uh, draw the green? Well, sometimes it can be like a small P. And you will find a version of this again and again and again. But people kind of recognize this. It's almost like the systems are out of balance. Now, the interesting thing here, of course, is a couple of things. Now, the first thing is the following. If your threat system is like this, if it's really big, one way I can help you to understand it is imagine that I gave you a pair of glasses to wear and the pair of glasses had a red tinge to them, like the ones you see on the screen. And then wearing these red tinged glasses, I held up this pen and I said, what color is this pen? Now, you would say it's red and you would be completely right. But now imagine I hold up this white pen to you and I say to you, what color is this? You're also likely to say it's red. And unfortunately, you would be wrong. It's not your fault. The point is, when your red system, the threat system is very powerful like this, it starts to bias your attention. So it leads to a negativity bias. It influences, of course, how you think yourself about yourself, how you think about other people. So it affects your mentalizing abilities. It affects the way you think about your future. It affects the way you think about your past. So does that make sense to folks then? Unfortunately, when the red system is too big, it starts to dominate and unfortunately skew and bias the way we think and feel about ourselves and our abilities. And of course, this can cause more pain. So what are we trying to do in CFT? What's the focus? Well, we're going to try and do three things. Reduce the red, build the blue, grow the green. So in some simple ways here, alliteration helps. Reduce red, build blue, grow green. So we're going to do things, of course, to help you in therapy to try to reduce your threat system or at least to have you having more uh, flexible threat systems rather than a frozen flexism just to say anger or to anxiety. We want to be able to build the blue if it's too small. We could do this through behavioral activation, activity scheduling, um, positive psychology interventions. And we're also going to grow the green. Now, we can do this through all sorts of things. Because this green system is linked to your parasympathetic nervous system, in particular to your vagus, we can grow this through doing lots of things, breathing rhythm work, uh, facial expressions, inner voice tone, body movement stuff, imagery, and so on, meditations and so on. So we can grow the green in many different ways. Now, interestingly, compassion isn't just the green system. Compassion actually, if anything, sits at the fulcrum of all these three. Because compassion, of course, involves moving into red system, into threat and distress. It involves the blue system in trying to relieve distress. But it needs to use this green system to cultivate this green system because this green system is, of course, the system that helps us to regulate our threat response and is linked to, of course, important aspects of the attachment relationship. Now, again, I'm just giving you a very narrow version of CFT, unfortunately, just because of time. But what I wanted just to finish off with here is just to give you a little bit of a sense here of a couple of things. 
So number one, there is a difference between something called compassion-focused therapy and compassionate mind training. So compassion-focused therapy are all of the key things that we would normally do in the psychotherapeutic uh, uh, frame. So this is focusing on the therapeutic relationship, collaboration, guided discovery, goal setting, motivational interviewing, boundary setting. So all these common things. Compassionate mind training are the body and mind skills training that I can take you through that help you to cultivate a compassionate mind. Now, I can do these within compassion-focused therapy, or I could do them outside of it. So these types of compassionate mind training involve things like attention training, mindfulness, body posture work, soothing rhythm breathing, uh, imagery work of safe place and calm place, building a compassionate identity, doing meditations on your compassionate other or your compassionate self, doing meta practices, loving kindness practices. So these are all practices that we can do that help to build up. We call these compassionate mind training. Now, the key thing here then is, is that often if you're a therapist, you can do these within the fuller process of compassion-focused therapy. But sometimes, of course, you can do these outside of the therapeutic process. Uh, uh, I've developed, for example, with a colleague, an eight-week compassionate mind training group for the general public. So this isn't therapy. And of course, I'm still a therapist, so I'm maybe bringing in a few of these things. But mostly it's taking people through over eight weeks the compassionate mind training skills that we do in CFT, but you're not in therapy doing it. Uh, I We have an app that's coming out uh, next year uh, um, based on our book uh, that I'm sure uh, we have later on and that uh, we can send through links to you, the Compassionate Mind Workbook. Uh, so we can send a link for this book if you're interested. But we have an app coming out next year. And that app, of course, isn't therapy. This is going to be compassionate mind training. So I hope this makes sense. And the compassionate mind training component, folks, we've got lots of lovely studies now showing that if we just take you through things like soothing rhythm breathing, uh, compassionate self-practices, key things that we've been doing in CFT for many, many years, that this is associated even just over two weeks with reductions in shame, self-criticism, psychological distress, increases in self-compassion, increases in compassion for others, increases in um, positive emotions. And even changes in things called heart rate variability, which shows the relative impact of your sympathetic nervous system and your vagal system, your parasympathetic system. So the point just to say is that even outside of therapy, just doing a couple of weeks of practicing once a day compassionate mind training exercises, some lovely studies now showing this can bring changes to your physiology and also to your psychology. But for those of you who are therapists, just to say, and I'm going to finish on this bit, We often talk about three phases here of CFT. So the phases here are these. So phase one is the therapeutic foundations. So this is creating the conditions for therapy. This is the therapeutic relationship, secure base, how you set up the room, how you support people to understand what to expect in therapy, to encourage them to ask questions, to do supportive assessments and formulations. Now, in CFT, this phase one would also include certain types of psychoeducation. We haven't been able to do the psychoeducation today on uh, tricky brain ideas, but we would share with them the three system model that I've just taken you through, how we're shaped by uh, things that go on in our life that we don't choose. I haven't been able to take you through this. These ideas are not your fault. So a rich tapestry of psychoeducation that I've only able to give you one version of this, a, a small slice of the pie today. We will also at phase one take people through what compassion is the myths of compassion, the fears, blocks, and resistances of compassion, because this is really key in CFT. 
that we recognize for very good reasons. People can be very fearful and blocks to the giving and receiving of compassion. Phase two is compassionate mind training, body-based tra uh, trainings, attention training, mindfulness, breathing rhythm practices, imagery practices, compassionate self, compassionate image, uh, loving kindness practices, and so on. And then phase three is basically taking phase one and phase two and turning them towards whatever the difficulties are that the person came to you for therapy for in the first place. This could be trauma memories, it could be shame, it could be self-criticism, it could be working with complex emotions and memories, and so on. Now, maybe if I give you a version of this, then just to finish, I don't want this just to come across as linear, that CFT is, you know, sort of you do step one, then you finish, then you go on to step two, and then you go on to phase three. The way that often this will be done is in a sort of a parallel way. So you might start off on course of phase one, but then begin to bring in phase two bits in parallel. And then, of course, phase three things might also begin to work in parallel with this too. So you've got a process here as we start to go through that helps people to begin to connect and engage in therapy. So psychoeducation to develop wisdom and understanding about the nature of your mind, how so much of what goes through you is not your fault, about the universality of suffering and distress, how you've been shaped by things you don't choose, how your three system model is balanced, how you have a tricky mind that often gets caught up in loops. Building in phase two, the abilities to be with your distress, to be with your threat system, mindfulness, body posture work, body movement work, compassionate imagery, and so on. So these are the skills training that allow you to build you up. Uh, an equivalent here would be, uh, you know, if you're going to run a marathon, first of all, it's good if you go and you start to get fit. You know, you do smaller runs, you go to the gym. So in a way, we would see in phase two, you're building capacity, you're building your abilities to then, of course, put that to work in phase three. So there, of course, what you can begin to do is turn towards this uh, new insights of phase one and understanding and the abilities, your compassionate mind in phase two, you can turn them towards the difficulties that you face. Now, of course, I'm talking about this in terms of therapy, but you can take this same three-phased approach and just do work on your own as well, just in terms of self-compassion work, you can learn about this model, you can apply it to yourself, you can do compassionate mind training, and then, of course, you can put your compassionate mind to work. Now, if you are interested in some of the audio practices and the ways that we do compassionate mind training, then please do look at my website. Uh, the compassion, uh, uh, It's called Balanced Minds, so I'm just going to click you onto this. So here are a couple of the books that you might find on the right-hand side. This would be more for therapists if you want to learn CFT from the inside out, applying it to yourself. The book on your left-hand side is for anyone, really, for therapists, the general population, people who are in therapy. This is the workbook I was just showing you. So this really breaks down many of the steps of the CFT model, including the practices, and helps you to uh, really learn about them uh, for yourself and start to put practices into place. And I guess the main bit also is if you go onto our website, uh, balancedminds.com, there are a variety and many of the audio files that guide doing some of the compassionate mind training practices as well. So if you're interested, you can find uh, uh, many of the audio files to use there. And uh, amazingly, uh, it's 11.40. So uh, perfectly now, I've sort of landed here uh, on time. So, so shall we go to some questions now, uh, Nada, if that works okay for you? Um, thanks for being. That was a really, really uh, interesting presentation. Um, I think people got loads from that. 
So we've had quite a few questions in the Q&A, so I'm just going to go through these now one by one, okay? Um, so the first question I'd like to ask is, um, have you got any recommendations for people that want to get started with building a compassionate mind? Like what are the kind of the things that you recommend people start with in terms of, I, I suppose, habits for, for building a compassionate mind, if that makes sense? Yeah, the, the, uh, I would say, of course, and I'm, I'm biased here, that the Compassionate Mind Workbook uh, is a good starting place if you just want to start learning about this, uh, folks. Uh, but, of course, I, I'm biased there. But I wrote this book here with uh, Elaine for exactly this reason, for anyone anywhere in the world who just wants to start thinking about this, to be able to break it down into a workbook-like way in which you're guided through with examples how this stuff makes sense. Uh, broadly, though, if I was going to answer this question in a slightly different way now, you could think about it as uh, the starting point here is back to intention. It's back to that motivation that is inherent within the definition of compassion for us, and that it's that recognition that actually I want to start to wake up and to turn towards the things that I find difficult in life in a different way. And so it's this motivation in a way, just if you think about it for me, and I guess I'm talking a bit about self-compassion here. In a way, what we're trying to get across here, folks, is the way that you are, the way that you feel, the way that you would respond to the people that you love in life, the motivation that you have towards them when they're distressed and they're suffering. What we're going to try to do here is in part, how do we get you to take that same approach to you? And one of the things I sometimes say here is the following. If you think about your life, you will spend far more hours in relationship with yourself than you will do with anybody else that you meet in this life. In fact, folks, if I add up every single hour that you spend with other people in your life, it will come nowhere close to how many hours you spend in relationship with you. But here's the question. What type of relationship do you have with you? Do you treat yourself with the same wisdom, the same kindness, the same motivation as you treat other people that you care and love for in the world. And if that's not the case, it's not your fault that it's like that. It's very, very common that we struggle here with this. This might be a starting point to your motivation then. Let me try to begin to build a relationship with, in the end, the thing which is most precious, which is your relationship with yourself. Because if we can get this bit sorted, then, of course, relationships with others don't become easy, because, but they become easier. That's that's such a great point. Um, okay, so the next one is from Baron. She's asked, how can CFT be applied to autistic children and adults who find mentalization very difficult? It's a, a wonderful question, Baron, and it's something that many wonderful colleagues that uh, uh, I get to work with are doing uh, in the UK and also across the world now. One of the bits, of course, is that uh, we... We know that for some people who are higher up on the autistic spectrum, there are certain competencies that are more difficult. For example, things like um, uh, mentalizing a type of empathy theory of mind. Now, interestingly, though, sometimes it's quite difficult to recognize how much of that is happening because actually people are very threat-based. So if you think, of course, for the experience of people who struggle with autism, their life, of course, is often that they've been bullied, they've experienced negative things from other people, their threat system is very big. And the problem there is, of course, maybe there's been very little space for this soothing system to develop. Now, what we do know neurophysiologically is when your threat system is very powerful, 
this can uh, block or certainly narrow down your mentalizing abilities. In fact, there's some wonderful work by Julian Thayer and colleagues showing though that when, for example, you get your parasympathetic nervous on, uh, system online, the green system online, you can do this through uh, slowing down your breathing rhythm, a very simple thing. They found in some scientific evidence that when you actually do that over a period of time, this led to uh, better decision-making abilities for people. So experimentally, they could show that. Now, I know this wasn't with an autistic population, but my point being is when your threat system is so dominant, of course, it makes it harder to understand the mind of others. It makes it harder to understand social conventions and so on. So what CFT is trying to do is helping to balance out the three systems, helping people to feel more safe inside of them, and then beginning from that position to support them to begin to move into uh, uh, how they might understand other people's minds, how they might relate to other people. And we're hoping in the near future, we'll start to have some studies that might also to be able to back up some of the wonderful stuff that we've uh, 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 been finding so far and how this might be beneficial. So I can't say at this stage that CFT is going to be beneficial for this group because I don't have the evidence yet. I have anecdotal stuff coming back from people who have done this and certainly working with adults who are higher up on the autistic spectrum. I found it's been very helpful, but hopefully we'll be able to come back with some evidence in the coming years to back this up too. Fantastic. Okay. So Samuel has asked, what are the key differences between CFT and ACT, would you say? Um, it's a wonderful uh, question. Sorry, who was asking the question again? A gentleman called Samuel. Samuel. Thank you so much, Samuel. It's a great question. Um, in many ways, you could see that these are like cousins. Uh, to a certain extent. Uh, there, there's a lot of DNA overlap, but there are also some differences. Um, and I think it's harder sometimes to talk about some of the differences because as time's gone on, probably they've they've influenced each other too. I certainly know that ACT, for example, didn't start out talking about compassion-based work, but in ACT now, there's lots of focus on compassion and self-compassion work. Uh, and I think in part that is is linked to CFT work. I, I can say that partly in confidence because a good friend of mine and colleague, uh, Dennis Tersh, who uh, is the past president of the ACBS, the ACT community, he is also one of the world's leading authorities on CFT and, in fact, wrote a book, uh, The ACT Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Compassion. So Dennis and his wife, Laura, for many years have been trying to bring the ideas of CFT and compassion into the ACT community. So it's just to say, uh, Samuel, with this, I think there's overlapping stuff. Uh, what I would say is that CFT has taken, to start with, I guess, uh, more of an evolutionary perspective to understanding minds and distress. I know that is slightly different now because Steve Hayes and others have also started to talk more about evolutionary importance that sits underneath ACT. So there are some important differences, but I think probably some of this is sort of coming to together and I would say that uh, I, I think ACT is fantastic. It's, it's a wonderful approach. And I think it has a, an awful lot that uh, uh, it works in parallel, really, with CFT. Brilliant. Okay, so Stella has asked, in your experience, which psychological disorders is CFT most useful for? And then as a follow-up, Phil asks, are there any situations where CFT wouldn't be the treatment of choice? Mm -hmm. uh, great questions. Uh, the first one, what would it work most helpfully for? Honestly, I can't tell you. Um, as a scientist, to, to be able to answer that question, I'd have to have some really robust um, um, studies that would be able to tell you and, and, and I'll be able to share with you. Um, at this stage, we don't have those. In fact, 
even across therapies that have been uh, uh, around for a very, very long time, like CBT, we, we still struggle sometimes to be able to really say, you know, is CBT more effective for this or this? I mean, there's some indications. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to answer that question in the future. What I would say, and again, take this with a pinch of salt, because of course I'm biased, is that um, because compassion is about the universality of suffering, I would argue that CFT could be helpful for all approaches, all difficulties. If you think in many ways, suffering is the, uh, it gets to the guts of human distress. Mental health disorders uh, are more recent phenomena that we put names to and we've given a name to. Many people would argue that science of some of them aren't that great. So one of the interesting things, as you see, maybe from the three circle model, CFT in some ways tries to cut through and across mental health diagnoses and really gets to the guts of this. Why do we suffer? Why do we struggle? Now, we suffer and struggle in part because it's difficult to manage our emotions. So that goes across every single mental health problem involves uh, emotion regulation problems, difficulties with emotions, whether it's from psychosis, depression through to eating disorders. So here we have an approach that might fit. Uh, of course, what we recognize for all mental distress involves difficulties in CFT, of course, as a multimodal therapy has to target that too. And so what I'm saying here is, is that uh, uh, at this stage, I, I couldn't tell you which it would be more effective for. At this stage, what we seem to be getting through is that CFT seems to be helpful for uh, a wide variety of people, both with mental health distress, but also people who don't have mental health distress. So the study that we just published on our eight-week group for the general public, again, we found that that led to, so this wasn't a, a, a clinical population, but it led to reductions in depression symptoms, stress symptoms, reduction in self-criticism, increase in self-compassion. So what we're trying to get across here is that this is a model for all of us. So remember when I first started, was, all of us will suffer, all of us will be distressed. Now, the second question was, are there any suggestions of where this might not work. Well, it might well be, again, we find this out for CFT because we're science-based. If we find that CFT doesn't help for a certain group, we want to publish that. Uh, of course, we'd be disappointed, but we want to publish that because people need to know. But also we would need to change what we're doing to work out why is that not helpful? What do we need to do differently? And so we're very passionate in this, really, that this is an evolving, ongoing thing in which we will learn more as the science emerges, as we understand more about uh, how the brain works, how the body works, but also the difficulties. What I would say, of course, is, is that there are likely to be some difficulties that are, for any approach, difficult to work with. We're beginning, for example, uh, working in some forensic populations, working with uh, people who struggle with some psychopathic traits. The nice bit is we're beginning to get some research through in forensic populations, a nice study coming out of Portugal showing that a CFT course significantly reduced psychopathic traits in uh, adolescents in a forensic system. So even in areas which actually have been traditionally quite difficult to, uh, for therapy to bring change to, we've got some early studies showing something quite positive. But I, I will uh, emphasize this again. These are early studies. We need to do far more rigorous research. And I certainly don't want to get across that CFT is, uh, although I love this approach, I don't want to oversell it, folks. Uh, this will come out in the data as the years and the decades go on. In some ways, although CFT started in the 80s, it's a relatively young approach. And, uh, and what that means is, of course, that the studies and the uh, complexity of the research that we're doing is just building and building each year. 
And so we'll start to be able to discover this. And maybe if Nile is okay, I can come back and talk to you again in, in two years or three years' time, uh, and we can uh, uh, share a little bit more of where we've got to with the research. Awesome. We can definitely do that. I'm just building on the on the research. Um, Lauren has actually asked, are there any key papers you'd recommend around compassionate mind training efficacy? Yes, uh, there's a lovely study by Marcelo Matos, who's a good friend and colleague in Portugal. This was a paper with Paul Gilbert and many others. This is a lovely study because it was an RCT uh, looking at compassionate mind training. It was the one I mentioned, the two-week study. Um, and what they found there was just in two weeks, in comparison to the group that didn't do the weightless control, that uh, doing these compassionate mind training practices once a day, and it's fair to say not all uh, 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 people part of the study did their compassionate mind training practices each day. Um, but what they found was, you know, the significant increases in all the three flows of compassion, reduction in self-criticism, shame, fears of compassion, depression. And so I think it's a really lovely study because if I think about it, just two weeks of practice, just two weeks of practice led to these difficult uh, differences, sorry, and also led to a significant increase in heart rate variability, which is this measure which shows that physiologically you had more parasympathetic tone by the end of it. And I get excited about this study in part because I think, wow, that's just two weeks. What would it be like if we went into schools and we taught this regularly with school kids? What would it be like if all of us could have more access to being able to try out these things and practice these things regularly? So that would be the study that I go to as a, a really nice starting one on compassionate mind training, uh, which I think is a, a very exciting about what it's laying for us to move into in the future. 100%. Um, so you mentioned earlier about imagery, using imagery in, uh, in the process of building a compassionate mind. Could you maybe expand a bit more on what that actually involves and how people can maybe start doing that in their own lives yeah imagery is is a wonderful thing because of course and, and many therapies use this uh, but it's also to say of course imagery existed before therapy came along so people were using imagery uh pre, pre therapy for a very very long time uh emily holmes some of you will know her work a wonderful psychology researcher has found that uh, imagery has a more powerful impact on emotions than uh, words alone so we know imagery is a very powerful way and we have a very nice type of psychoeducation in CFT uh, uh, to help people to understand this partly as well, which is that we know that this brain and body of ours reacts to internal images, so imagery, as it does in a similar way to external things. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, you, you have to use this judiciously, but just for you folks at home, Later on uh, today, let's just say that you were with somebody who you found very sexually attractive. And let's imagine that they didn't have many clothes on and you didn't have many clothes on. Well, what can happen in the body in those situations? Well, of course, we can get aroused. It's a very straightforward process. But we all also know, do you need real people for that? Well, no. We can close our eyes and fantasize about somebody that we find sexually attractive. And what happens just by using imagery, you can also get aroused too. And so the point here is, is that actually if that works for sexual imagery, then, of course, it can also work for other types of imagery. So in CFT, we have a variety of imagery practices, some which are more designed to build upon the green system. So uh, say place imagery, calm place imagery and so on, but also some which are more centered on cultivating the compassionate mind directly. So we have a, uh, uh, an imagery practice called the compassionate other in which you take time to try to create an idealized compassionate figure. This could be a human being. It could be a piece of nature. It could be an animal. 
in which you bestow certain qualities. For us, it's uh, wisdom, strength, and caring commitment, and how then you get this image online and you start getting it to relate to you. So in a way, directing imagery, uh, uh, care, wisdom, understanding, kindness towards you. The second type of practice that we have is uh, called compassionate self. Now, this takes in imagery which links to some acting techniques. It links to some Buddhist-based practices uh, and certainly the motivation of bodhicitta and bodhisattvas. But the point being there is, is that we try to focus on getting you to imagine you as a compassionate version of you. So it doesn't matter whether you think you are this today, but you start to imagine if I was a compassionate person, how would I move around in the world? How would I treat other people? What would my facial expression be like? What would my voice tone be like? And we start using imagery as a way for you to begin to experience and play through this. And then, of course, we can bring it into the real world with uh, uh, physical practices of getting you to move around actually as if you are this person. So there's lots of different ways in. Again, go back to the Compassion Mind Workbook. There's these audio practices for some of these imagery guides on the Balanced Minds website as well if people are interested. Fantastic. Uh, we've actually got a question from Chris. He's asked about, you said in the talk that self-criticism is a bad thing and he's sort of saying, you know, can't it be a good thing as well? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the interesting bit for us is, uh, I wouldn't describe it, and I apologize if I did, Chris, as a bad thing, um, because it depends on the different types of self-criticism. Overall, we know that self-criticism is associated with higher levels of symptomology in all the major mental health problems. We know self-criticism can predict mental health distress. So uh, studies showing that 11-year-olds, when they're measured for their level of self-criticism, if you go back 10 years later, those people who had higher levels of self-criticism age 11 are more likely to be depressed age 21. But Paul and I did some studies on this. We uh, um, developed some questionnaires looking at the forms and functions of self-criticism and basically worked out, we published this in 2005, I think, we worked out that there are different forms that self-criticism can take and different functions. Now, there are some types of self-criticism that are more about self-correction, which are basically milder, and they're more about almost like course corrections when you made a bit of a mistake. They're not very harsh. They're not very punitive. But we also found certain types of self-criticism that link to hatred and disgust, so quite very punitive, and this was highly associated with mental distress. So, Chris, it's a wonderful point, and what we talk about here is, is really recognising the type of self-criticism that we have, the function that it plays, but in particular what we look at for in CFT is the type of shame-based self-criticism in which the function is often very destructive, harmful, and so on, it's not your fault why you have that self-criticism. Often it's developed for good reasons. And often, actually, it serves protective functions. So self-criticism is trying to protect you from uh, being lazy, making mistakes, uh, being rejected by others, and so on. So compassion, in a way, for self-criticism in CFT is to send compassion for those things that self-criticism is trying to protect you from. Uh, again, there is a chapter in the workbook that focuses on exactly this. And it's a recognition, really, that we don't try to get rid of self-criticism in people because often it's serving helpful functions. What we ask people to do instead, can you learn to relate to yourself in a different way? And in particular, can you begin to relate to yourself in a more compassionate, self-correcting way? And maybe just the final thing to say on this now, because I'm aware of time, one way that you can think about self-criticism, Chris, and it's an exercise we sometimes do because we have lots of exercises about self-criticism in CFT, but interestingly, one way that you can all just think at home about this is the following. 
If you were to think about your self-criticism, the words you say to yourself, the way that you treat yourself when you are uh, struggling, now you could think about this in a slightly different way. If you could somehow personify that self-critic and you could think about those words, is this the type of teacher that you would like if your child was struggling at school with, say, maths? The same way that your self-critic talks to you, would you be okay this being a teacher and this teacher saying the same words of criticism to someone you care for who's struggling? And often when we take people through that, there's a big shake of their heads. So there's a sort of appreciation, really. No, that's not what I'd want. And the key thing then to think is, well, what sort of teacher would you want for a child who's struggling for maths? And the interesting thing, of course, we can say a compassionate teacher, but the key thing there is, what would they have? Because they wouldn't ignore the problem. A compassionate teacher wouldn't turn away from the struggle in maths and say, let's just go play football. You know, maths is boring. A compassionate teacher would be patient. They'd turn towards the problem. But they would work with the child with patience, with supportiveness, with kindness, with guidance. That's the compassionate motivation. You don't turn away from difficulties, whether in somebody else or in you. But rather than punitive self-criticism that can be really debilitating, it's taking responsibility, having wisdom and finding ways to be helpful and supportive. So, again, I know we need to be out of time, but if there's any questions that I haven't uh, been able to answer uh, or you want to find some uh, recommendations, I'm happy to send people uh, papers and uh, research and uh, direct them further. Please do drop me an email there, chris at balancedminds.com. I'm very, very happy to try to send you whatever would be helpful for you. Just one more question before you go, Chris. Um, actually, two questions. So, for anybody at home watching this that is interested in training uh, or integrating CFT in their approach, what are first steps? Like, where would you recommend they go for this this training at? And the other thing is, you mentioned your app coming out uh, next year, I think. Yeah. Um, where can people sign up for to learn more about that? So the first question, the best place to go to is the Compassionate Mind Foundation. This is the charity that Paul Gilbert, uh, myself and others set up uh, something like 13 or 14 years ago. And it sits basically at the heart of CFT developments. So the website is www.compassionatemind.co.uk. What I'll do for everyone at home is um, I'll drop Niall an email to forward out to you just with that uh, uh, web mail address on, uh, sorry, uh, web address on. The second thing was, what was the second question now? About, about the app. We're going to learn more about the app. I'll also send through a link for where you can sign up for um, uh, details of when it's going to be released. The app, uh, uh, one of the developers, of the, the company who's developing this app uh, was the previous head of research for Headspace. So we're very excited that this will be an app which will uh, be really helpful for people um, so I'm very happy to send through details of that so people can sign up for the news about that too. Fantastic. Well, Chris, it's been it's been a brilliant presentation. Thank you very much. Um, everybody else will be back at 1 p.m. for the second talk on dialectical behavior therapy. So thanks for tuning in and we'll see you all soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, everyone. Wishing everyone a, a happy Christmas wherever you are. And uh, yeah, look forward hopefully to see you in, in person next time around. And thanks, Niall, as well, for all the wonderful work you're doing. My pleasure. All right. See you later. Everyone. Bye-bye.